Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We're on a new chapter. Mark chapter 14. It's not only a new chapter, but it's really the beginning of the end. As one commentator put it, we're entering the holy of holies of Scripture. Not that all Scripture isn't holy, but as we hear about our Lord's death, and the events leading up to it, you do feel, in a sense, you're walking on sacred ground when you contemplate that we're talking about the death of of God. This is God in human flesh dying for humanity, and you realize, oh, what a, a price, what a cost. Why would God do such a thing? You start there, and then you look inward, and you realize if such a solution was necessary, what a problem there must be. And the problem is personal. Praise God that He didn't come up with some kind of plan, some kind of policy, some kind of self-help program. The sin is personal, so the solution is personal. We're talking about a person here, the person of Jesus Christ, the person we sang to and about this morning, the person in whose name we gather, and person we're hoping to love more and more dearly every day. And as we just finished hearing Jesus speak about the end times, were those that the Bible calls those who love his appearing. Love is appearing. If, if you've ever parted from a loved one, but you know you're going to be reunited, you can't wait to see them. And here, Jesus Christ, we've never seen Him in the flesh, but if you know Him and have put your faith in Him and have an intimate relationship with Him, you can't wait to see Him. And we're going to look at the way the people who did get to see Jesus face to face how they responded to him. We're really going to look at three different responses to Jesus. We could call the responses adoration, indignation, and detestation. Just trying to make all the words kind of rhyme. Um, If those words don't work for you, how about the good, the bad, and the ugly? (laughs) I hear a Spaghetti Western fan out there. These are people who saw Jesus, lived with Him, watched Him, heard Him, broke bread with Him, got to touch Him, hug Him. How, how do they respond to Him? What can we learn from their actions? Let me read the whole text to you just so we can kind of get a feel for what's going on. Remember, Jesus has just finished His public ministry, three years of teaching, healing, doing miracles, refuting error. We had the triumphal entry. He came into the temple, cleansed the temple, and then held court for a week, answering all the religious leaders' questions, turning their traps on back onto them. And he's finished teaching now. He leaves the temple, crosses over to the Mount of Olives. We saw how he taught about 
the end times, what it would look like and how to be ready, but he wouldn't give us an actual date, although he gave us the signs and the clues that the date is approaching and the teaching was to be ready, to be expectant, watchful. As like Charles said this morning, using our, our, our freedom to glorify Christ and be ready and tell people, are you ready for the return of Jesus? Is your heart ready? Are you ready to stand before Him and give an account? Are you looking forward to His return? Are you ambivalent about it? Or does the name of Jesus disgust you? This is the world we live in. These are the kinds of people we're surrounded by. After giving the Olivet Discourse, the speech on the Mount of Olives, he goes to stay at a house in Bethany, which is just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, in the home of a leper of all people, Simon the leper. Let's read. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray, uh, betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money, and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Compelling, fascinating, drama-filled story. Mark arranges the story in such a way to make it even more compelling. I have to tell you, and I hope this doesn't bother you, that this anointing of Jesus doesn't actually happen chronologically where you find it in Mark's Gospel. It actually happened the week before, the Saturday before. We know that from John's Gospel. So did Mark get it wrong, or did he do something intentional here? Well, the Gospel writers don't get anything wrong. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit. This was a very common way in an oral culture, oral storytelling culture, to sometimes rearrange chronological uh, stories to make a point. Mark does this often. In fact, I want to introduce you to what theologians call the Markan sandwich. 
That doesn't sound so like technically theological, right? The, the Mark and Sandwich. They should have that at Conan's, I think. Get that on the menu. I'll have the Mark and Sandwich. Often Mark interrupts a story in his gospel to insert an especially important point or scene. So we've got a narrative. He stops the narrative, puts something in there. We call that the meat of the sandwich, another highly technical term. And then finish the story. So you've got the bread, the bread, the meat in between. Sometimes the meat fits chronologically. Sometimes it doesn't. There's no deceit here. It doesn't say um, directly after the scribes and the Pharisees plotted this happened. It just stops and we kind of get a flashback. Doesn't this happen in the movies we watch and the books we read? So we're used to this. It's just since we weren't there, we, we want the stories to be chronological so we can kind of get the lay of the land in our minds. Why would Mark do this? Well, it just draws attention to a point. He wants special attention. And it helps us as readers to go, oh, here's one of these sandwiches. I guess we really need to focus in on the meat. You know, what is, what is the meat here? Well, clearly the meat is this woman pouring this expensive perfume on, on Jesus. Juxtaposed or positioned next to people who are trying to kill Jesus. So it's this great contrast. But even when you look at the meat, we're going to see that people who love Jesus, this woman and his disciples, there's a great contrast as well. Unbelievers and believers, we, we get the discrepancy. And that discrepancy is getting more and more evident every day, it seems. Every day. Just last week, Supreme Court rules 5-4 to four that Hobby Lobby and other corporations don't need to uh, pay for certain forms of birth control to their employees if they're abortifacient uh, drugs. Hooray! We, we applaud that. Why should an employer have to violate their conscience? Hobby Lobby will pay for other forms of birth control. They're, they're fine with that. They just please don't ask me to pay for what I consider the terminating of a human life. Don't make me do that. And the outrage. Oh my goodness. You would think the end of the world was near for those who are opponents of God and of life. This has set back women's rights a hundred years. This is the government telling women what to do with their bodies. And you're like, wow, if only people would get upset about real injustices. Nobody seems to care about this group called ISIS in the Middle East lopping heads off left and right. Don't take away my one of many forms of birth control I have access to. It's like the end times for unbelievers right now. This is one of the signs the end is near. They're interrupting my recreation. I'm going to have to pay for this out of pocket. This is tyranny. You see, it, it's sick. It's deluded. Well, we understand that. And yet the Mark and Sandwich brings our attention to a contrast between believer and believer. So certainly we have the contrast between unbeliever and, un- and believers. The bread of the sandwich are the unbelievers, but the meat are believer and believer. So here's where we're going to focus. 
just to give you another example of a mark and sandwich, so you know I'm not making this stuff up. You know the story where Jesus is uh, goes to heal Jairus's daughter. Remember that one. The uh, Roman official goes to Jesus. My daughter's dying. I I believe you can make her well. In fact, he says, you know, I command men to do this, and they do it. I see that you're one in authority. He has the faith to know that this guy has the authority to command diseases to go away. It's pretty radical faith, and it's coming from a Gentile. And so you're like, wow, this is a really cool story. I am hooked, Mark. What happens next? Well, this woman with a bleed comes in. And you're like, what? Where? why is this story in here? And actually, this one's chronologically correct, but it breaks up the entire flow of the narrative. And it's a long section. In fact, it makes uh, the opening section of the story about Jairus' daughter look like it's the insignificant part. But it was just enough to whet your appetite and get you going, well, tell me about the girl. I want to know about the little girl. What's going to happen? Well, here comes this older woman with a bleed, and she's like, if I could just touch Jesus' cloak, I'll be made well. And then she does touch his cloak, and Jesus says, who touched me? And they're like, are you kidding? There's like hundreds of people here. And he says, I felt some power go out of me. And he sees the woman, and he says, your faith has made you well. And the meat of the sandwich is faith. And then you realize, oh, it's the Jairus' dad had faith, too. Faith is the whole point. We're not talking about a faith-healing kind of faith. It's who are you putting your faith in? Or grammatically, in whom are you putting your faith? Some people appreciate the correct grammar, right? I'm one of those people. (laughs) Spelling, too. Don't get spelling wrong. Okay. So there's the sandwich. The bread is Jairus' daughter's story. The meat in the middle is the faith of this woman. It draws our attention to faith. In this case, he actually takes a story that happened a week before and inserts it into the sandwich. All to make this point. Of all the people who should have embraced Jesus correctly, the religious leaders and his disciples that followed him for three years. These should be the people we would expect that if God showed up, first of all, the religious leaders should say, there he is, the one we've been waiting for, the one we've been telling you about, the one we've uh, spent our whole lives memorizing the scriptures so we'd be ready for his coming. the contrast is so clear that it leaves you scratching your head or you're in disgust. And you know, I just don't understand how these religious leaders could have missed it this badly. They've watched them do the miracles. They've seen the love. They've seen the compassion. What is wrong with these people? And scriptures tell us that they've hardened their hearts and God in His sovereignty has also taken their hardened hearts and given them blindness, spiritual blindness. And you're like, well, is it man's fault? Yes. Did God have anything to do with it? Yes. I don't know how that works out, but the scriptures are clear that they're both at work here. And they both have to be at work for somebody to be that spiritually blind. And we're surrounded with the spiritually blind now. And they're getting angrier. And they're getting louder. And they're demanding rights. And their rights don't make any sense. They're uh, unreasonable. 
they're irrational and often contradictory. The very things they're saying they want the right to do, they're taking away from other people. We have the right to believe whatever we want. You can't tell me what to believe. Okay, but you must believe this. Well, that doesn't even make any sense. There are no absolute truths. Well, is that an absolute truth? And they just get angrier and angrier. And I know a time is coming and we're preparing our children to stand up to, to tyranny and religious persecution. If revival doesn't come, then this is, this is where we're, we're headed as a people. And so we look at these religious leaders, those who detest Jesus. God showed up. The people who said they love God, they know the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. God shows up and they can't stand Him. They plot His death. And they know they're wrong, at least on some level, because they're trying to do it by stealth. There's going to be a riot. They know they're in the minority here. You know, for all their plotting and sneaking around, they cannot thwart the plan of God. Think about this. They didn't want to kill Jesus during the Passover because Jerusalem is flooded with people during the Passover. Probably two to three million Jews in and around Jerusalem to be there for the Passover. Jesus has gotten quite popular at this time. So this would be a horrible time to kill him. And yet they can't do it uh, privately. They're trying not to violate their own laws because of all the people who like to keep laws. These are the people who pride themselves in keeping laws. So it appears that they're plotting to do it you know, after the Passover once people start going home. But God's like, no, we're going to do this publicly on my timetable. And when you think about when would be the absolute worst time, theologically speaking, to kill Jesus. If Jesus is supposed to be the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world, if you were a Pharisee or religious leader, when would you not want him to be killed? On the past, not, over, not only during the Passover week, but on the actual time when they start slaughtering the lambs. When do they start slaughtering the lambs? Three o'clock on Passover. Well, Jesus wanted to eat the Passover meal with his disciples so he could celebrate Passover with them and, and explain to them that what the new covenant was and say, this is my body and this is my blood. So how are we going to pull that off? Only God can do this kind of thing, right? The northern Jews from Galilee celebrated the Passover on Thursday. The southern Jews who were in charge of the temple celebrated Passover on Friday. Jesus celebrated the Passover with his friends from the north on Thursday night. He was arrested in the middle of the night, tried, and at 3 o'clock, right when they're slaughtering the Passover lambs, he's crucified. Amazing. God's amazing. I know you knew that already, but just thought I would give you some more reason to say God is amazing. 
And you say, how could people not believe in this with all of this evidence? And it's that spiritual blindness, which always stems from a hardened heart, a heart that has its own agenda. We understand the problem with the religious leaders is they just liked to be in a position of power. And this guy was going to undermine their whole lifestyle. He was going to tip over the apple cart, ruin their whole power structure. I mean, if you have the market cornered on religious truth and you live in a theocracy where, where uh, religion really runs the country and the law of God is supposed to be the law of the land, then the religious leaders, the ones who are trained and, and were chosen at an early age to study, they're going to be the ones in charge of everything. Now you got a guy coming along who claims to be a religious leader, and not only that, but his actions back up his words. He's doing miracles. He's preaching with authority. He loves like nobody's business. And he's telling the crowds, hey, these guys don't know what they're talking about. It's going to make you real unpopular. So much so, really, can't you just ignore him? Can't you just deal with him, let him have his little movement? And No, they've got to kill him. They're going to kill a man, a righteous man. And they know that people are not going to be happy with this, so they need to do it by stealth. Where is one of the 70, the Sanhedrin made up of 70 religions, where is the one who stands up and says, this is insane? There was one who did say, look, if he's from God, we better not touch him. If he's not from God, God will deal with it. He'll go away. But they're not going to listen to this guy. They're going to end a life just to hold on to their power. As believers, we need to be careful in our own little ways that we don't do the same. We kind of get our little power structures and we got things just the way we like them and maybe we have our ministry just the way we like them and and then somebody comes along and I hope and pray that none of us would say, oh, they, they got to go. They got to go. Now, we're not going to kill anyone, right? But we're going to make things uncomfortable for them there or um, make some new policy that excludes this person from being in the ministry. Really? Would we do that? Who's been in church long enough? Oh, we need a Savior. At least we know we need one. That's the difference between us and these religious leaders. We don't need... We don't need a Savior. We keep the law. We'll tell you who needs a Savior. We're the people that get to decide that. And here comes a man who says, you need a Savior too. They don't want any part of it. The other slice of bread, the the slice at the bottom of the sandwich, if we skip to the end of this section, you've got Judas. Okay, here's a guy who got to spend three years living with Jesus. That's how it worked in the rabbinical system. You lived with your teacher. You did everything with them, went everywhere. The whole point was for their life to just kind of bleed into your life, that you would just absorb their teaching and their way of life. Is that that wonderful, that we're disciples of God, of Jesus Christ, that we should spend so much time with Him that His teaching and His life and His way of loving would just bleed into us and then back out through us. 
What a, what a wonderful concept. And yet Judas, at the end of the three years, realized, this guy's not setting up a kingdom. I just wasted three years of my life that I'm never going to get back. I'm not going to be rich. I'm not going to be powerful now. I think Judas knew that, the, it's in some level, that the religious leaders were out to get him. I'm going to lose everything. I don't want to be associated with this guy. If you can't beat him, join him. So he sought to make friends with Jesus' enemies. There's a, a money theme running through here because as we're going to see, though, the woman spent a lot of money on Jesus. 300 denarii. A, de- a denarii is a day's wages. 300 days wage, A year's wages. Plus the alabaster flask wasn't cheap either and she broke it. She could have uncorked it, but she just busted the whole thing and poured it out over Jesus. Extravagant love, extravagant adoration, extravagant gift. Judas sold out God for 30 pieces of silver. It's like nothing. It's not even a good weekend. You know? What are you going to do with 30 pieces of silver? And sadly, it's what was prophesied by Jeremiah, the price to buy out a slave, and that Messiah would be bought out for 30 pieces of silver. Judas should have known that. Just blind. In fact, we read that Satan had entered into Judas. The Pharisees and chief priests and elders were doing what they were doing for money too. We know that. Jesus said they were lovers of money. You've got to hold on to your power structure so you can hold on to, to money. So there's the, the bread of the sandwich. Money, loving, power, loving people could, could care less about Jesus. What's in it for me if I follow this guy? Nothing that they wanted. So they needed to get rid of him. Now that we have the bread, let's look at the meat. Because I think for most of us here, this is where it's going to hit home a little more closely. We live, live in the bubble here. Jennifer and I got to get outside the bubble this week. Our anniversary is today, but we celebrated it earlier this week. Our kids, my kids, her kids, our kids were with <laughs> my parents. And so we went to the Getty Museum which is a phenomenal place if, if you haven't been. Um, but we realized we were out of the bubble. Yeah, you see all kinds of interesting folks. And as you're walking around that amazing museum, you're realizing this is all mostly art from unbelievers. And this building built to glorify man and look what man can do. And it was an amazing building until you turn around and see the Pacific Ocean and the mountains and realize they got nothing on God. In fact, all the art is just aping, mimicking what God has already done. And we were looking at this building, and I'm like, you know, one earthquake will take this whole thing down. So, and then we went to the Getty Villa, and that looks out over, over, over the ocean. And yet the whole Getty Villa is there to... Uh, it's a collection of Greek and Roman antiquities, so it's naked sculptures everywhere of 
young men. And you're like, okay, Romans 1, Paul, you know, making God into the image of man. And you realize these are pagans. This is Jesus' world he was walking around in. This is the context for what we're reading here. So we understand those unbelievers, but what about the people close to Jesus? That would be us now. In fact, how close are we to Jesus? His Spirit dwells inside of us. We're as close as you're going to get. And the world sees Jesus in us and must decide if they love that or hate that. We are Jesus to the world. Are you living your life in such a way that when people are in your presence, they know they're near Jesus? Or are you getting in the way of Jesus shining through you? And if people hate you because they see Jesus in you and hate Jesus, that's on them. If they hate you because they hate you, because you're not a nice person, well, then that's something you need to repent of. This last week, somebody who oozed Jesus out of her pores went to be home with the Lord. One of the teachers here at the school and a great Christian woman in our community, Connie McCullough. This woman, it was like being next to Jesus everywhere you went. Just praising the Lord all day long in terrible pain from her cancer. She, uh, two years ago, the cancer had come back, and she said, I'm ready to go see Jesus. Her husband said, could you stay around a little longer for me? And she did, in spite of the pain, because that's the kind of love she had for people. So we'll, we'll sorely miss her. Our loss, heaven's gain. But I want to be like that kind of, of, of person. Nobody had a bad day around Connie McCullough. I see, you know, Carl nodding. Let's look at the meat of the sandwich. We have adoration in the sandwich and some indignation, which they don't really go together, but they're both in the sandwich. You know, there's certain ingredients you don't try to put together in your sandwich. And Mark did this on purpose. It's like, wow, look at this wonderful adoration. And then these men who love Jesus, right? They're the disciples scolding her. What are you doing, woman? What are you, crazy? You know how much that costs? Of course she knew how much it costs. That's why she did it. Let's look at the adoration. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, let's pause there. What is Jesus doing staying in the home of a leper? I'm talking as if I lived back then and I was a Jew. What is he? Boy, you can't live in the home of a leper. Even if he is healed, it's still, for a religious leader, it would be like, yeah, okay, he's been declared clean now, but I'm not staying there. He's, he, leprosy was the kiss of death, if, if you got it. Literally, if you weren't healed or cured of it, you were going to die. But uh, the stigma, the, the social stigma, in fact, the lepers would go live out in a, you know, a colony outside of town. And if anyone came near them, they had to yell out, unclean, unclean, so people could keep their distance. And if you were healed, you'd have to go to the priest, and he would declare you clean. He would, he would check your body for sores and declare you clean. But 
from what I'm reading, even if they did declare you clean, still, look, the guy's clean. What's his name? Simon the leper. Simon the leper. When do you get to shed that last name? In fact, there's three Simons here. Do you see them? Who's the other Simons? Simon Peter's there. And then Judas's uh, dad's name is Simon. You didn't know that, but I'll let you, let you know that. So Simon was a very common name in Israel. And so to differentiate between the different Simons, you needed some kind of distinguishing description. And this poor guy is Simon the leper. Hey, we're going to Simon the leper's house. Who, who's, who's going? Uh, well, maybe we'll catch you after words after you bathe. Well, you know. And he, he's there eating. And there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard. We know this is Mary, not Magdalene. Mary, Martha's sister, Lazarus's, Lazarus's, you know, the sister of Lazarus. Yeah, thank you. And it's common for uh, a slave in the house to wash the feet. It was uh, considered good hospitality. And sometimes to anoint the head with oil. So there wasn't anything um, out of the ordinary of pouring oil perfume on somebody's head and even wiping the excess oil off with, with your hair. It was out of the ordinary that it was so much and so expensive and it wasn't a slave. This is a friend of Jesus. You remember Mary. She's the one who wouldn't help her sister with the housework. Remember that, Mary? Mary who said, Jesus, come, my brother is sick, come and heal him. And then Jesus didn't come in time and Lazarus died and she got upset. If you would have come earlier, you would have saved him. And Jesus said, I waited because I love you. In other words, I let him die on purpose for your faith. Jesus can come and heal people. They're going to get sick again. Eventually, we all died. He let Lazarus die, let him lay in the grave for a few days, and then raised him to show the world he had the power to raise people from the dead. Mary knew that. And so the other disciples are, are mad at her. For us sitting here, we're like, oh, that's, that's just lame. Come on, guys. What a beautiful thing she's, she's done. And you don't really absorb the power of the narrative unless you try to walk in the feet of the disciples. Why were they so upset with her? These disciples, most of them were poor tradesmen. They didn't like the rich power structure that kept them oppressed. These were the original social gospel kind of people. Jesus was coming to restructure the whole power structure, and the poor now were going to be the ones in charge. And the social gospel has lived on through the ages and very much alive and well in America. And yet Jesus was not preaching a social gospel. Mary got it. Jesus had said over and over and over again, I am going to die during the Passover. I'm going to die. 
I'm going to die. He told them when it was going to happen and even how it was going to happen, that the Son of Man was going to be lifted up, that he was going to be crucified. And the disciples said, no, may it never be. Remember, Peter said that. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. This is what I've come to do. Mary understood it. I believe that Mary, on some level, understood this is the Son of God and He can forgive my sins. I say that because of the Bible's testimony and my own experience that nothing moves people to love like having your sins forgiven. Last week, during the new members class, we got to hear testimonies from 23 people. And you know what? They were all very different and very wonderful, but they all had one thing in common, and it's the one thing that just chokes people up. How could God save a wretch like me? Jay Adams' book, he talks about a secular psychiatrist who said, uh, and this was a guy uh, high up in the National Institutes of Health, and he said, you know, we could empty out two-thirds of our mental hospitals if I could just convince my patients that they're not guilty anymore. Just what guilt does to our sense of well-being. It's the greatest words I ever heard the day I was saved. Such were some of you, but you were washed. Wow. Wow. This is the sweet message we have to tell the world. It's the message Jesus was telling the world, and the world said, we don't want the message, which is sad because they don't know it's, it's the one message that is the greatest message of all, the message their hearts are yearning for and longing for, that freedom that Charles talked about this morning. Not freedom to do whatever I want. Get this oppressive government off my back and then I'll have true freedom and happiness. No, your own oppressive government called your flesh will steal your freedom from you. True freedom is being able to obey. To be good with Jesus telling you what to do and to obey. That's true freedom. So we've got this adoration contrasted with indignation. I think the disciples just, they, they were missing it. They always seem to miss it. Remember I told you a few weeks ago, they're very young. They're very young. Which is shocking the first time you hear that. They were very young. And when you realize how young they were, their actions aren't so shocking anymore. You've, you know 17, 18, 19-year-old, 16-year-old men, and that puts it all in perspective. They're just acting like young men act. They miss the point. We could have sold that perfume and, and helped the poor. You know, what's the next question? Okay, you feed them for a little while, then what? You know, then what? Jesus was saying, you're always going to have the poor with you. He's quoting Deuteronomy 15.11, which the rest of that verse says, therefore you're to have an open hand to help the poor. In other words, it's part of the fall. No matter what system man tries to come up with, and oh, we've tried, there's always the poor. And if you've been on both ends, sometimes you're on... on on one end, and then you get on the other end, and you could lose it all, and then, and then you're the poor. Sometimes it's circumstances out of your control. Sometimes it's circumstances that were in your control. You made some bad choices, bad decisions, bad spending decisions. Sometimes it was loss of job. Just got fired. 
wasn't your wasn't your fault. Got injured, got sick. You said, "All right, well, maybe resources are too scarce. There isn't enough for everyone." Oh, there's plenty. There is plenty of resources on this planet for everybody, but because of man's fallenness, it just doesn't always get to the people it needs to get to. And sometimes that's the poorest fault, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's the richest fault, it's greediness, and sometimes it's not. Who are the most generous people on the planet? Often, the rich. So there's no finger pointing here. It's just a sign of our fallenness. And Jesus said there will always be poor. Until Jesus returns the second time and makes things right, then there will be no more poor. We'll all be rich in Christ and have our, our needs met. Perhaps we'll, uh, being with Christ and being completely sanctified, we just won't have a sense anymore that there's things we need. We'll just be satisfied with Christ. Won't that be wonderful? Why wasn't this perfume sold and, and given to the poor? And they're, they're scolding this lady. Can you picture this scene? It's Mary. They know her. They've hung out with her. She's pouring perfume on Jesus' head and wiping it. We find in John's Gospel, wiping her feet, uh, his feet with her hair. It's such a beautiful act of worship, and they don't get it. They just they don't get it. And now that we know that this happened the week before he went to the temple, imagine what Jesus smelled like in the temple all week as he was teaching. You know that passage in 1 Corinthians that the gospel is, is an aroma that's life unto life to those who believe and death unto death to those who reject it? She was using perfume that was not only used to anoint people when they came over for dinner, which was a wonderful sign of hospitality, but it was also used to prepare bodies after burial. And you would know that smell during the funeral procession. Now, isn't that interesting? To some, Jesus' perfume would have been a beautiful scent, and to others, you smell like death. And... To those who are perishing, Jesus smells like death to him. They don't want to be around him. They don't want to hear about him. I don't want your Jesus. Have you been around those people? Don't tell me about your... I don't want to know about your Jesus. Go away. If you've ever gone door to door, well, you'll get some doors slammed in your face. I don't want your Jesus. And for those who are desperately crying out for a Savior, the aroma of a true believer, letting that aroma of life of Christ in them. It's just the most beautiful thing to be around. Which is why I like hanging out with believers. <laughs> I know you do too, but we're called to get outside the bubble and spread the good news. So, here's what got me the most here while prepping this passage. I am not like Mary. I'm a doer. I'm like the Martha person. In fact, I confess that I get annoyed with the Marys. Shouldn't you be doing something? Shouldn't you be serving somewhere? Shouldn't you be helping? Well, certainly. Certainly. Adoration and sitting at the feet of Jesus and extravagant love towards Jesus does not neglect service, obedience, work. But which should come first? Which should come first? Worship. 
If you don't fill your cup with the love of Christ, you'll have nothing to give. And you'll do it in your own strength. And then work and serving will become laborious and dutiful. And I'm tired of serving. And people just wear me out. And before you know it, you don't want to be at church anymore because you're just done. You're just done with people. I'm done serving. Well, did you sit at the feet of Jesus? Have you soaked in his love? My wife gave me a, a, a message after first service. One of my good friends who pastors in St. Louis had this on his blog this morning. Let's see if I get this right. Come to the sermon from your knees and leave from the sermon on your knees. So worship on your way here and worship on the way home. We sang some great songs of adoration. I don't share my sermon notes with the worship leaders. They just choose the songs and the Holy Spirit takes care of the rest. And I just move to tears while singing. Oh, this is my sermon. I remember hearing the story of a uh, um, fairly well-known preacher, circuit preacher. Uh, what do you call this? You know, an evangelist. They've got one or two sermons, and they go around and they, they preach that sermon. And he was at one of those big conferences, and they've got all the music beforehand, right? And he's up on the platform with another speaker, and he leans over to the other speaker, and he says, when are they going to stop all this music so we can get to what we're all here for? You know, and the, the other speaker had to kindly rebuke him. He said, I think we're here to worship. That's what these people are doing. I don't know how you get up and speak after that, but it was probably a really good message of repentance. (laughs) Sometimes, though, adoration doesn't always look like this. You can adore Jesus through your work. Just check your motive. Why, Why are you working? Are you doing it to impress Jesus or impress others? Are you doing it out of the overflow of love? In your heart, I want to do this for Jesus. Interesting here, the preposition here Jesus uses. He says, she's done a good deed to me, not for me. I wanted to say for. I thought maybe that was just the New American Standard, and I looked at the other versions, and it's two, and then looked at the Greek, and it's two. She's done a good deed to me. You know, it made me think, does Jesus really need me to do anything for him? You know, he's self-sufficient. He can do it a lot better than I could. He does ask me to do things for him in the sense that I'm doing it to represent him to the world. But here, this woman is doing something that really, to the outside world, has no value. In fact, it seems a waste. It's just going to wear off. You can't attach a dollar value to everything and think about, well, what we could have done with that money. Sometimes it's right to worship Jesus extravagantly and not count what the cost is. Pastor Andy's told me stories about the building of the sanctuary here, and he really wanted these really nice features to bring glory and honor to God, and there was one particular elder who said, well, we shouldn't waste the Lord's money on such things. You know, he wanted to strip down 
version. But I think when you walk in the doors here and just look at the church and the grounds and the beauty here, it just oozes God is beautiful. God is beautiful. Well, the Holy Spirit just brought to mind a story because I see Ernie Irwin there and he was telling me once he got his son a special guitar to worship Jesus. I don't know how much it cost, but it probably cost a pretty penny. And are there less expensive guitars? Could we have used the savings for other things? Yeah, but we're worshiping Jesus. Why not? Why not? I've got to change my own thinking here. I remember reading about George Mueller, the great Christian uh, who ran uh, orphanages in, in England. And he would pray two to three hours every morning to start the morning. And a new assistant had come in and interrupt, Mr. Mueller, there's so much to do today. When are we going to start? And he said, that is exactly why I am praying. Because there is much to do today. I don't know about you, but I start praying sometimes and my mind is flooded with all the things I need to do. Would you like for your pastor to just sit at the feet of Jesus for a few hours in the morning? Would you be okay if you walked by and just saw me quietly in prayer? Would you insist that from your leaders? Oh, good. (laughs) Hold me to it, then. I like Paul. He's a doer. (laughs) But I'm sure he sat at the feet of, of, of Jesus and he probably had to learn to do that. It didn't come natural for, for that guy. He was a type A, went to the best rabbinical school, climbed the ladder. I mean, he, he, was, he had hit the top of his profession at a very early age, so much so that even after his conversion, he could go to any synagogue and they'd say, Saul's here. Whoever was set to teach that day, sit down, Saul's here. That's a lot of power for a young guy. God sure did a work in his heart. Yeah, praise God. You know, we've got all the scripture written by Paul and we talk a lot about him. But here's this woman, Mary, who Jesus says, because of what she's done to me today, prepared my body for burial. Wherever the gospel is preached, her name will be honored. Let's honor her name today. You know, we, we don't even hear that it's Mary here, probably because Mark was protecting her identity. He's writing at a time when Christians are persecuted and imprisoned and, and killed. But we do find out later from John, probably after Mary went to be with the Lord, because John wrote his gospel last in like 80 or 90, that we find out, oh, this is Mary. Martha's sister, the sister of Lazarus, the one who doesn't like to clean house. The one who'd probably annoy me because I'm a worker bee and a doer. But I've got much to learn. Jesus wants our adoration. Why, why again, such extravagant adoration? Because she knew this was a son of God and he had the power to forgive sins and to give eternal life. 
And he had told his friends, I'm going to die. And she didn't want him to leave. She got it. She got the point. What she knew about Jesus informed her worship. And that's the point this morning. Truth informs worship. Don't try to just sit at the feet of Jesus without knowing who He is. Okay? We're not saying this morning, put your Bibles away and just soak. You need to know who you're adoring and why you're adoring Him. Then, with the truth, true worship then will lead to true charity. If only man could figure this out. You can't force people to be generous. You can't force people to be generous. You ask those in our country who, who aren't religious and you know, don't give to charity, don't give to their, their church. You ask them, why don't you give? And they say, I give in my, t- my taxes. Well, so do the people who give to charity and to, the, to their church. Giving in taxes is no replacement for generosity. And yet, when you build a relationship with someone and have compassion for them and and love them, you will be far more generous than your taxes will ever be. That's why I love at our church that the way our deacons handle the deacons fund is to interview the people, find out who they are, what their story is. Do they know Jesus? We don't just cut checks. Don't just cut checks here. It takes a lot of time out of the lives of the deacons, but I applaud them for doing it the way I think Jesus would have us do it. Get to know people. Make sure they know who Jesus is. Look, this check will help you today, but here's something that will help you forever. Mary was focused on the death and resurrection and the deity of Jesus. These are the most important truths of the Christian faith. Faith, these are the gospel. Don't replace the gospel with the social gospel. Yes, go out and help the poor, but why? Because we're poor in spirit and Jesus saved us. Now we're rich in mercy and love. Make sure when you're helping, your helping helps. That when you're helping people, you tell them about Jesus. You tell them, this is why I'm helping you. Because Jesus helped me. Keeping our focus on these things will lead us to proper worship. That's why we've rearranged our mission statement to be all about Jesus. A-L-L. We adore Jesus by learning from Jesus and learning about Jesus so that we can love like Jesus. Flip the order and try to go out and love Jesus without adoring Him, and like I said, you will your tank will run empty real fast. Too many needs out there. Too many needy people, too many ungrateful people, too many entitled people. You'll develop cynicism. Turn off the conservative talk radio. Open the scriptures. Sit at the feet of Jesus. Fall in love all over again with your Savior. And then go out and share the love of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray and uh, 
Go uh, love like Jesus after we've been adoring him for an hour and a half. Father God, we come before you as your people, knowing you dwell inside of us. We're as close as we can be, and yet that residual sin separates us. Cleanse us, Lord. Purge sin from our lives. Replace it with your love and your grace till we're overflowing. And then we can go out and love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us to get our priorities straight, Lord, and make you first. May we never scold a sister or brother for adoring you lavishly. Lord, for us who are doers, may we learn to adore before we do. And for those who could use some more doing, Lord, help them to find balance too. That they would take all that adoration and find a place to serve you. I ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.